Hey there, and welcome to Why Is That Important, where people come for interesting ideas and perhaps a little debate. Uh, I'm your co-host of Smaller Intellect, Joe Wanger, and I'm here with our smarter host, Andrew Martin. Hello. And uh, you know, each week uh, we have the privilege of interviewing someone who has has something that they feel is important enough to talk about, and uh, we'll take the time to to discuss it and perhaps even disagree on it. And today uh, we're joined by a a very special guest. And although we're not related, Andrew and I both call this man brother, since both of our mothers have asked us the question, "Why can't you be more like him?" That's to, right. To be folks. fair, he is literally <laughs> my brother as well. You're not related to him, but I definitely am. That's true. But uh, in case you're wondering, it's the one, the only, the magnanimous Nathaniel Martin. So how are you doing today, Nathaniel? I'm good, thanks. That was a great introduction. I don't know if I can live up to any of that. Yep, that's Nathaniel for you. already have. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so anything exciting going on with you these days? Any new kids? Um no, no new kids to announce. Um, the one kid is very exciting uh, uh, currently, and she is just now is able to reach door handles. Oh, yeah. She's just breaking into every room and closet in her house right now. So it's just like a logistical nightmare, and I don't know what to do about it. They make, they make things for that. Do they? Okay. Well, that... They- Maybe you, we can talk about that in your guys' other podcast. <laughs> it's probably not that important. <laughs> Hardware for your home or something. Don't, don't you All have right. another podcast? <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> That's that was one of my ideas though. <laughs> Hard, Hardware for your home by by Joe Wanger. Everybody will listen to that. All right. So um, why don't we go ahead and we'll just kind of dive in here. Um, tell us, you know, what your topic is. And then give us just a little background of who you are and maybe some context of, you know, how, how you've become aware of, of why this is, why and what's this important, what this is that's important to you. Sure. Uh, The topic is the aesthetics of the built environment and the built environment is just a fancy term for the world around us, the man-made buildings and the roads and bridges and everything else that people make and Um, people experience in public space. Um, The reason I'm interested in this topic, uh, there's some professional reasons and personal reasons. I'm an architect by profession, um, and so this is a lot of what we do every day. Uh, We think about um, our clients' buildings and how they present themselves to their clients and to the public and what that says about them, um, how they represent themselves. Uh, I also care about it personally, and I don't know if I have a reason for it. I just always have. Even when I was uh, a kid, I remember having really strong opinions about some buildings, uh, really positive feelings towards some buildings and really negative feelings towards others, not really being able to explain why. And I was really curious why I felt that way. Um, And I still wonder that sometimes, but I think I have a slightly better grasp of, of why people, uh, myself included, have strong feelings about uh, buildings that we see and public spaces that we uh, 
encounter. So when you say the built environment, um, you said it's, you know, the, the human made things we interact with. Does that include like consumer goods? Or are you mostly speaking in terms of um, buildings, things, structures? Generally, the built environment means things that are, it's talking about buildings and structures for the most part. Um, it, I wouldn't, I mean, you, could, you certainly could have the same discussion about like handheld electronics um, or things like that. Um, and the same, you could talk about the aesthetics of everyday objects in your home. Um, and you could go down a really similar kind of trajectory. That's a little bit outside of my area of expertise. Um, it's still interesting and it's definitely related. Uh, the built environment is a lot more about spaces that we live in and work in and sleep in and experience every day, um, structures that are permanent um, or semi-permanent um, that we encounter in everyday life. Well, talk a little bit about when you say permanent or semi-permanent. Um, I imagine most people consider their homes to be permanent, um, but I'm not sure if to an architect what the idea of permanence means because, I mean, from a geology standpoint, everything is semi-permanent, even the continents. So it's it's a question. I'm curious where architects like to draw that line. Yeah, I don't know if there's a specific line uh, that we would all agree on, but we're talking about time scales roughly around human lifetimes. A lot of modern buildings that are built today are built with a 40 or 50 year lifespan um, and com different components will have shorter or longer lifespans than that. Um, there's a push for um, in some circles for longer lifespans in buildings. Um, but people tend not to get super offended by th things that they perceive as temporary in the built environment. Um, they respond differently if, if something is happening that is going to be there for the rest of their life versus something that's like a one week event, if that makes sense. So the built environment certainly includes things that might be temporary. Um, but the bulk of it and certainly the bulk of what, um, what I do professionally has to do with things that are going to be around 50, maybe a hundred years or could be more, uh, could be less. Potentially across multiple use cases, then I imagine. Yeah, and in, in fact, they often outlast the agenda that creates them. Um, but that's kind so, of a <laughs> different discussion. So, um, for kind of a point of clarification, you talk more about where the door is located in the room and less where the sofa is located, or something along those lines. Well, that um, that's an interesting debate uh, within architecture. Is um, there's there's one approach that's used professionally is this idea of a core shell building um, where you just create the exterior envelope and the infrastructure of the building and someone else comes in and you know puts in whatever they want to and that that stuff on the inside is more temporary that's how a lot of commercial real estate is done and then there's this there's other concepts in architecture there's one a German word um, and I'm probably saying this wrong, but it's something like Gesamtkunstwerk, which is basically a total work of art. Um, it was popular around the turn of the 20th century. And it was this idea that everything from the form of the building all the way down to the minute details, even in some cases, including the clothes that the client was wearing, were part of this elaborate design scheme. Um, and so there's disagreement about 
what is really under the purview of architecture. Um, and it's certainly not the same in every, in every case. Um, but generally in sort of the generic professional world, the furniture is something we plan for, but we don't necessarily design or get too in depth with. Okay. So kind of bringing this full circle to the aesthetics. Um, when you talk about aesthetics, most people, I guess, would suggest that that's a highly subjective topic and it's not something you can necessarily do well or poorly in an overall sense, but it's a well or poorly in a very individualistic sense. So I think somebody like me, for instance, I would imagine you're seeking to please the customer with their aesthetic desires and with and you would design to those desires. So, you know, explain a little bit how an architect deals with some of those complexities. Um, well, I would challenge some of the assumptions that you made in the beginning of your question. Um, <laughs> first of all, I don't think philosophers who study aesthetics, and there, there's, there's a branch of philosophy called aesthetics, um, by the way, they wouldn't agree that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which is kind of what you said, with everyone having an individual subjective view of it it certainly is somewhat subjective but if you take um you know a group of people and you show them two images nine out of ten of nine out of ten of them are going to agree uh, in a lot of cases you know if it's buildings for example they'll probably agree which building's more beautiful um or things like that so um i wouldn't necessarily say that it's it's completely subjective individual taste um but it's certainly not completely objective. There's no formula that uh, works consistently. It, it's contextual, um, and it it's perceived differently over time. Um, they can uh, buildings, images in general can certainly be loaded with different connotations, and those connotations can change. Um, so it's not a fixed point. Um, but there are there are definitely patterns. It's not totally random either. Um, and then when it comes to the client, to answer the second part of your question, um, we do often challenge our client's uh, uh, idea of what they think they want or what they think looks good. Um, and there's there's different reasons for that. And some architects do it more than others. Some architects have their own sort of personal brand or style that they or signature that they put on every project. And others are more service-oriented and kind of just do whatever they're asked to do. So you said there's uh, multiple connotations that an aesthetic environment can contain. Um, how does that work? What what flesh that thought out about? It. Give us some examples of some of those connotations. Hmm. Okay, that's that's uh, well. Let's take um, the Washington Monument for example. Um, the Washington Monument uh, clearly states that George Washington was the man. Yes, that's certainly one way it's perceived. Um, <laughs> and if you if you ask people, you know, what is this? Most people won't ask won't won't say it's a giant marble obelisk, um, which is objectively what it is. Most people will say, you know, it's a monument to our nation's founder. It's a way of honoring him. Some people will say. Um, it's, you know, it's a, a symbol of, of federal power. Um, other people will see it as a, 
um, like a, a feminist perspective would see it as a phallic symbol. And so there's all of these different ways of looking at this same object, which everyone would agree is a marble obelisk, um, but not everyone would agree on what it represents. Um, and so um, I guess my only point was there are some patterns in what people tend to find beautiful, but there's also a lot of disagreement about what symbols represent um, and, and what they mean to different people. And, and that aspect of it is very fluid. So are you saying like, are you saying there's kind of like a differentiation, especially in architecture where um, like somebody's house is different than something like a monument, like, like a house, like a house isn't necessarily a symbol as much. I mean, maybe for like status or, or something like that, but it's not like people are saying, Hey, most people aren't building a house and saying, you know what? I wish people would think about America when they look at my house. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. When people build a house, well, first of all, I would say houses are definitely symbols. Um, but you're right. When people build houses, a lot of times they're, they're not super conscious about what the symbols that they are using are or how they might be perceived. It's not really consciously thought about for most houses that are built. Um, it certainly is for some. Um, okay. but I would say a lot of people do think about how their house will be perceived by other people. Is it going to make me look uh, wealthy? Is it going to like make me look um, progressive? Is it going to make me look this way or that way, successful or or um, traditional. Um, so I would definitely say that, I, I guess the point is that the symbolism um, and aesthetics is connected to that. It's unavoidable, uh, especially in the built environment. You can't, it's not a choice between aesthetics or not aesthetics. You're going to have an aesthetic regardless. Um, even if you unconsciously, even if you never heard the word and don't think about it, you're still going to end up with an aesthetic. Um, and, so I guess an answer to the big, that's one answer to the big question of why do the aesthetics of the built environment matter is that they're unavoidable. So I guess then the question becomes, what, how do you define good aesthetics and good symbols and how do you choose which symbols to use when and so on and so forth? Because I guess if the symbols are part of the aesthetic, and it's your job as an architect to use them to effectively communicate a message. I don't even know who gets to decide what that message is. If that's you or the client or, you know, the historicity of the place that you're operating in deciding what that message is. But how do you decide what symbols to use and what situations to affect what end? Yeah. Well, there's, there's different approaches to that. Um, and one of the most popular approaches is just to make stuff that looks cool. Um, <laughs> I like that approach. Yeah. Well, it's definitely straightforward. Yeah. And, and what's funny is that when you think too much about aesthetics, it kind of gets harder and harder to do it well in, um, in a lot of ways. Um, certainly a lot of artists would, would say that their process is very intuitive. Um, and architects would say that too. Um, and so I think what happens is, you know, People see something and they know they like it. They don't necessarily know why they like it, but they want their building or their house or their town to, to have some of that. Um, and they aren't necessarily thinking, oh, this represents, you know, something about 
the progressive zeitgeist that taps into my vision of the future, they just say, it looks cool. I want something to look like that. Um, and then they kind of perpetuate that symbol. So it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be conscious and intentional. Um, but when you ask the question, which symbols do you choose? We, we have a, we can't necessarily control how it's going to be perceived, but we have a pretty good idea. Um, what looks cool now and what people will think, um, uh, is relevant or meaningful. Um, and that's kind of a lame answer. Um, it also, it doesn't help when you have houses though, that were built in the seventies with fuchsia and blue and yellow tubs. Like it's funny <laughs> cause you know, they all thought that was the future or, or my house with the wall to wall floor to ceiling mirrors. Like somebody thought for sure, like they were on the peak of, of, of architectural bliss and we walked in and we're just like, ah, oh, you know, like, so, so how do you, how do you get yourself, how do you get around then like the, the subjective nature of aesthetics? Um, well, that, that's an interesting question that there's a, an example that I've been wanting to bring up into this conversation. And, um, for your, your French audience, it's probably going to criticize me for my bad pronunciation of French. Um, but <laughs> There's a building in Paris called the Tower Montparnasse, uh, Montparnasse. I think that's how you say it. And it was built in the 70s, um, in 1973. And at the time, other than the Eiffel Tower, it was by far the tallest building in central Paris. And it's basically just a giant glass, opaque glass tower. Like it has no real shape. Um, it's just kind of a monolithic block. And after it was built, people were so mad that they got the law changed in Paris that there could not be um, any buildings taller than seven stories. So there's massive backlash against this building. Um, and uh, some people even said the, the best view of Paris is from that building because it's the only view where you can't see it. <laughs> That's vitriol right there. Yeah. So, but the, the story gets interesting because in 2010, that seven story ban was lifted. Um, and in 2014, the first building taller than that ban was approved by the city. Um, and it's under construction now. And it's, it's called the tower triangle in English, uh, triangle tower. And it's under construction now. It's very controversial. Um, people in Paris, in that neighborhood for the most part, I mean, there's, there's mixed reviews. Some people see it as a sign of progress. Um, but a lot of people in the neighborhood see it as ruining Paris's character. Um, and you know, this really out of place megalomaniacal, uh, egotistical kind of thing. So, but why didn't, why didn't a similar backlash like that happen in New York city with the building of the empire state building and so on and so forth? Because, in places like New York or London or Chicago, where you have these forests of immense glass, steel, concrete monoliths sometimes, um, that's perceived as generating the skyline that people want to take pictures of and hang on their walls. So why in France is it seen as, you know, ruining the character of the city? Why not, 
why I guess my question is this why was Paris okay with staying in I'm gonna pick an arbitrary date that I think might represent I haven't been to Paris the 1840s whereas New York and London continued to change their architectural styles and are seen as you know a modern a city of modern buildings uh, that's a really good question um, I do think there's a spectrum of responses anytime you have this sort of traditional versus progressive conflict and it happens all the time almost everybody in some point in their life has been involved in one of these debates like the it shouldn't come in or it should come in this new building or this new development, whatever it is. Um, everyone gets involved with that at some point in their life. Um, and different cultures have responded in different ways. The funny thing about Paris is that when the Eiffel tower was built, there was also a big backlash. Um, and, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but at the time people said the best view of Paris was from the Eiffel tower because it was the only place in the city you couldn't see it. <laughs> What goes around comes around. <laughs> it's hard to imagine Paris today without the Eiffel Tower. Like if you tried to demolish the Eiffel Tower, um, there's you would have you know five billion people against that basically. And so it is interesting, but at the same time, it's hard to imagine the Tower Montparnasse ever reaching that same status as the Eiffel Tower. Um, so you have this aesthetic problem. Um, in Paris, as far as what are the prominent symbols, what do they represent? And I think what it comes down to is, do the prominent buildings um, represent our shared values? And I think that kind of answers the question about what's different about from New York, from Paris. The buildings in New York do represent a shared value in New York, but they wouldn't necessarily represent that same that value wouldn't necessarily be shared in Paris to the same extent. Um, and, and also you have this great medieval and uh, Baroque city in Paris as well that, that people have a lot of attachment to. But not London? I mean, I know London had fires, but I wasn't, is, is, did that contribute to the character of London changing more than Paris over time? That's a good question. I, I'm not an expert on that, but I, it certainly could be um, it could have been the case in 1666, London burned down to the ground, basically, um, and was rebuilt. And so I think London has always had a little bit more of fluidity to it. Um, but there's, even in London, there's a lot of pushback against the the tall buildings that have been built there. Like the Shard? Like the Shard, like the Gherkin, um, like other nameless tall buildings there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but you could argue that those buildings represent a shared value a little bit more in London than they do in Paris. And the other interesting thing about Paris is they do have a district, a suburban district called La Defense, which has a lot of their tall buildings. So they basically kind of have this edge city that is like a central business district. It's just been relegated outside the downtown. So they have an edge business district. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. But but that that says something really different about Paris and what they consider important compared to other cities. Interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah. Huh. We did say the different word this time. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, I mean, that's I find that 
I've, I mean, it's fantastic to listen to. Um, so like bring it back to you then, Nathaniel, like you said, you know, obviously you talked about aesthetics just existing and that's why it's important. But like, as you think about it for you, as you, you know, even work in the field now and you deal with people, ignorant people like me, um, that don't understand all this thing or just think that something needs to be cool. Um, like, why do you find that, that, that this is just important enough to you, um, to even, uh, to be as knowledgeable about it as you are, um, but even bringing it up today? Well, I think that um, everybody does care about it on some level. Um, there's a field of study called environmental psychology. And one of the themes in environmental psychology is this idea of place attachment. Um, everybody forms an attachment to some spaces, certain spaces, just like they would form an attachment to uh, a parent or a sibling or a child. Um, and just as a thought experiment to test this out, imagine the house that you grew up in being bulldozed um, to build some other building, like a gas station or something. I had problems that they, <laughs> I had problems that they painted the front door a different color. Yeah. So. <laughs> it, it really, um, yeah, it's alienating and it's, it's, it's almost, it, it makes people cringe to think about the house that they grew up in being demolished. So that's an extreme example. Um, but we form attachments to the spaces um, and places that we live and work in. Um, but in addition to the emotional attachment, there's also just the preference. Um, and so I think that buildings should be preferential to everybody, to the public, so that the buildings individuals are emotionally attaching to are worth saving for everybody. Um, at the same time, they have a personal connection to that person because people will literally form place attachment to terrible, terrible buildings if that's where <laughs> they grew up um, and they have fond memories of it. Uh, but I would rather have great buildings be the buildings that people get attached to. So what you're saying then is, Place attachment is unavoidable, so you might as well have people attached to a place that everybody else wants to also keep. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and and I would also say that um, because aesthetics are unavoidable, people do really respond to it and care about it. Even people who don't think about it consciously, when you show them a rendering of what a building might look like, they will have an emotional response of some kind. Um, because it either meets their expectations, exceeds their expectations, or falls short in some way, or maybe a combination. But people will definitely respond when they see, wow, this is what this place is going to change into. What does that change represent for me? What does it mean about this organization? So even if they don't, if, even if they don't care about art, even if they don't care about um, the history of architecture, which no one does, other than a few of us nerds, um, people will still respond when it's a building that they care about. Now I want to bulldoze the house I grew up in and see how I feel about it. <laughs> well, I don't know if there's, I don't know if it still works the same if you're the one demolishing it. <laughs> well, maybe so. So for those who don't know, Nathaniel and I have another brother, which gives us the perfect opportunity. We all grew up in the same house and gives us the perfect opportunity for a double blind study. 
one of us will bulldoze the house, but the other ones won't know it, and we will have two examples that we can record our emotional reactions, and then we'll have some real data to go on. Yeah. That sounds like a perfect idea. <laughs> you, you would have to test the place attachment beforehand, because we won't necessarily have all formed the same level of place attachment. That's true. Yes, we did live there for varying amounts of time. Well, it's it's interesting that you say that the length of time is relevant because no one really knows the the neurological mechanism behind place attachment, and there's lots of theories. And one is that it's just literally the length of time you spend in a place it determines whether or not you will attach to it, um, which Although, is crazy because that means someone who's in jail for a long time would form place attachment. That's exactly what I was going to say. Is you would you think of you know the 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 guy shot down over Vietnam and stuck in the North North Vietnamese prisons and they're there for years and years and years in some cases. I really don't think they have a whole lot of place attachment. I probably want to see those places bulldozed. Yeah. Or think about every office worker in the United States. <laughs> it's just not like when I was there last time I was here. They've changed everything. They bulldozed where I worked. I don't care. They moved all the cubicles. Now I can't tell where my office used to be. <laughs> you say that, um, but sometimes when a certain amount of time goes by, the perspective starts to change. Like there's been a recent trend where people who grew up in East Germany have started to feel a certain sense of nostalgia for um, for the places um, and sort of East German culture and and the the sort of communist state of East Germany. Um, which is bizarre because it was a terrible, you know, by most accounts, it was a pretty terrible place to be and, and people were trying to get out of it. But now there's a certain nostalgia for that. Um, so they did have the Bauhaus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's the only thing I know from East German architecture. And that was technically before the splitting of Germany. So, yes, it definitely was. Although they, they turned that into barracks and walled it off with concrete and, the Soviets basically ruined it. So, um, okay. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm trying not to get sucked into a Bauhaus conversation. Sorry, I, I'm literally out of things I know about the Bauhaus, so it can't go anywhere from here. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, hey, I think. I mean, I think we we um, can't say that we covered that topic because I'm. You know, there's probably so much more that goes into not only just architecture, but aesthetics and, and all that stuff. But, um, I, I will say Nathaniel, thanks for, thanks for coming on here and sharing this with us. It's been, it's been enlightening and enjoyable. Yeah. I, I should make a disclaimer and say that I don't speak for all architects. In fact, probably most architects would probably disagree with some or all of what I said. So take it with a grain of salt. Wait, why do we have you on then? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we do really appreciate your insight, even if even if other architects don't know they're wrong yet. That's what a platform like this is for. <laughs> yeah, I I had a lot of fun. Cool, cool. Well, thanks. If uh, if you have some time, we'd appreciate it if you'd head over to iTunes, give us a little quick uh, positive rating. If you enjoyed this, it really goes a long way. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye.